and welcome to Bookends, a podcast from the team approach featuring books for leaders and human resource and organizational development consultants. I'm Susan Stan, and I'm pleased to welcome Peter Block to our show today, whose newest book is Community, the Structure of Belonging. To order a copy of this book, you can visit www.designedlearning.com, where you will find rich resources, articles, assessments, and more. Peter Block is an author, consultant, and citizen of Cincinnati, Ohio. He is a partner in Design Learning, a training company that offers workshops designed to build skills that are outlined in his books. He wrote the seminal book on OD consultation, Flawless Consulting, uh, recognized by organizational, the Organization Development Network with the 2004 Member's Choice Award for the most influential book for OD practitioners over the last 40 years. He recently was honored uh, with the OD Network Lifetime Achievement Award. His book, Community, the Structure of Belonging, came out in May of 2008. Peter has authored several other best-selling books about ways to create workplaces and communities that work for all. They offer an alternative to the patriarchal beliefs that dominate our culture. His, uh, he, he, wor- he works to bring change into the world through consent and connectedness rather than through mandate and force. With other volunteers, Peter has begun a small group, which is a network of citizens engaged in the restoration of their community through the powerful tools of, a tool of civic engagement. And you can visit a website about this work at www.asmallgroup.net. Peter Block, welcome. Well, thank you. I get to shorten that introduction other <laughs> than the book. Uh, don't be so uh, so humble. Um, uh, we're really impressed with your work and uh, eager to talk with you this morning. So, Peter, you begin your book, uh, Community, by sharing insights and models from a number of thought leaders who've influenced you and your work. And I found many of these ideas fascinating and wondered if we might be able to take a little time to review a few that seem to really form an important backdrop to to this particular book. And I'd like to begin with John McKnight. Uh, In a section titled Associational Life, you discuss McKnight's thoughts about systems and service, and I found this really interesting. Could you highlight some of uh, his thinking for us? Well, John uh, has spent 30 years discovering, uh, discussing and researching community, like what makes for community a sense of belonging, a sense of connectedness, what are the functions of communities, and uh, what he discovered was that communities have become rather incompetent, that our capacity together to solve human problems has been our capacity to be replaced by professional service systems. And so if he looks at people who are poor, who are not healthy, uh, who struggle in life, they're well-serviced people, and he's come to the conclusion that systems, organizations, and job and family services uh, all the, are incapable of really solving these problems. And he, he's, his basic stance is that the People in association with each other are the ones who really solve most human problems, not professionals. So he makes a big argument against what he, you know, against the service economy, and he says, why don't we reclaim for ourselves 
our ability to raise a child, to educate a child, to help troubled people. He's looked at the disabilities movement and find that most people with disabilities really need a circle of support and friends around them. They don't need more professional paid care. So it's a pretty radical thought. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it kind of resonates with people. Can a school educate my child? It's, it's not... They can teach my child, but there's so much more to raising a child than the school can do, and we've kind of um, we've outsourced these functions. It's pretty uh, uh, particularly interesting to me since I started my career in the human service industry. I, it just, you know, it was a whole new uh, way of looking at at these things, and I certainly uh, would agree with uh, John McKnight's thoughts about this. And I also read uh, with great interest. Um, uh, the insights that you shared from Werner Eckhart, uh, particularly, I'm oh, sorry, Earhart, yes, particularly uh, his discussion on context and how we can choose, actually choose a context that works for us. I just thought this was a, just a fabulous idea and really great news. In fact, I was cheering when I read this part of the book. Um, can you, can you, could you tell us a little bit uh, about his, his thinking about context and, and, and our choice around this? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, the headline is Context is Decisive. So his work, which is very well known, is that, that, that we, it's, we decide how the world shows up for us. So if I look at and I look at, at any scene I want, that I'm deciding what I see there. And so how I see it, if I see it as dangerous, as safe, if I see it as uh, uh, impacts my response, my behavior, and uh, economics is probably the simplest way to understand it. Right now we have a context in terms of e an economy that says scarcity is value. Mm -hmm. And we only give value to what's scarce. And some people are questioning that context and say, why don't we decide uh, economics of abundance, of, of gifts? And, uh, and so it's it just the, the technical, un understandable term is social construction, that I decide how I view the world, and I can view it as possibilities, or all I can see as problems. Another simple way is, is a glass half full or half empty. Yeah. And what Warner's done is, is underlined that that is critical. And, and my use of that idea is that if I look at my city, my urban center, I live in Cincinnati in my community, is it dangerous? Is it in decline? Is downtown difficult? And we've Told the story of Cincinnati that it's an unsafe place, mm -hmm. Detroit and every city. And so I'm trying to change the context within which we we view our kind of urban urban life. But it is it's a it's a powerful idea, and it says that if I can just shift my worldview or my way of seeing or my lens, that trans that is the key to my transformation and changing my relationship to my life. Mm -hmm. Really powerful ideas. No small thing. No. It's elusive. Yes. <laughs> and it's very difficult, you know, in the times that we live in to help enough people to move in that direction. Exactly, because if you read the, the public narrative, mm -hmm. the newspapers, the blogs, the TV, mm -hmm. all have a context of problems, yeah. of conflict, of what's wrong with the world. And most of that stuff I don't even have to know about. Somebody got killed in my city. I don't, it's not useful for me to know about that. What am I going to do? Decide that I should go out the house? Right, right. Well, that's uh, it's very powerful.
frequently put myself on a news diet and just don't allow myself to because it's just so negative. You have to. You, you, you don't want to. I would get rid of the AM radio band if I could. Because <laughs> the whole conversation is what's wrong with somebody else. Yeah, yeah. Nobody takes accountability. Part yeah. of the intent of the book is to try to shift the context in which we view our communities and, and create places where people are accountable. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, here's my choice. Here's Anyway, it's a big thing. It's just, it's just hard to reach. Yeah, it's, it's huge. And, and, and finally, one more of these folks that you talk about in the very beginning of your book that kind of lays, lays this context out for us for the, for the entire book is, is Peter Kostenbaum. Am I pronouncing his name correctly? Yeah. And, and, he, and he, okay. And he, uh, and he suggests that perhaps um, the real task of leadership, and I just love this, the real task of leadership is to confront people with their freedom. Wow. And uh, this just gives you so much to think about. It's just such a big idea. Um, Could you share a few of Peter's thoughts about freedom, accountability, and what he calls the appreciating paradox? Well, uh, it's a big idea. You're right. It's been working on me for about 15 years. And and I I write about it in hopes that I'll understand it. (laughs) Basically, he says that who we are is a human freedom. And I cannot be explained by my past, my genes, my environment, my parents, my peers. All the explanations we have for why people are the way they are cover everything but the fact that we come in as a as free choice. And as soon as you get that, then that I will be accountable for the world the moment I realize that I've helped create it. And so there's just a, it's just, it's enormously deliberate and has one small problem and it scares the hell out of it. You know, and so the price you pay for your freedom is anxiety. And and the other thing, Peter, and so if you're anxious it means you're on track. Well I guess I'm on track. You're You're supposed to wake up in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. All right? It's not a problem to be solved. You don't need a doctor or a diagnosis or, or McKnight's human services if you're anxious and you're paying attention and you're, you're, you have choice. And, and the, other, the other point is that, that certainty is a denial of the reality of life. That life is paradoxical. It's, it's ambivalent. It's confusing. And somehow if I can accept that, then it gives me enormous room in which to move rather than looking for the right answer and there's nothing more dangerous than to productive community or organization than the belief that there's one way and so it's, it's an argument against fundamentalism which is probably the cause of most of the violence and suffering in the world boy do i agree with you there and and um you know i, I just tend to think that a lot of us work against these ideas throughout most of our lives, we just fight this. We want answers. We want black and white. We I want safety. And we want safety, exactly. You know what I give up? My safety. I give up my sovereignty. Yeah. I give up ownership of my life. And didn't we, as a, as a, and didn't we, as a nation, a few years ago, you really move, take huge strides in that very direction? Well, this culture, yeah, it, it's a wish for dominance. Mm-hmm. That the way we'll be better off. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness will be better served as an imperial 
nation. Mm-hmm. And, and it has nothing to do with liberal versus conservative, or right versus left. Mm-hmm. In some ways, it's ultra-conservative. To go back to the notion that, they, that, that people have a right to choose, including countries, who yeah. they want to become. Lots to think about there. Wow. In, in uh, Chapter 2, I do, uh, but they do keep me up all you're, 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 you're an exception. <laughs> well, Settle for what's simple, will you? No, never, unfortunately. Um, uh, the, we, 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 we call it the idea curse in, in our family, and unfortunately we all suffer from it. That's great. Well, luckily there's only four of us, so don't worry about it. <laughs>
And, and, and you know, you, 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 of course, mentioned Obama in, in, in your comments there. And, you know, how do we get a nation of people to recognize their, their responsibility and ownership? Um, do you have any thoughts about, you know? He may get that. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got a whole, he's working as hard after the campaign to sustain mm-hmm. the volunteerism and participation that he had during the campaign. Yeah. Now, we have to do our part. And, uh, you know, I, uh, of course what he does matters because he affects context. If he fulfills his promise, he will shift the context. He will he'll say, we're going to start working with other countries. We're going to start caring again. Uh, you know, there's a wonderful book by Nelson Algren wrote in praise of small men. And he had a quote in there that, 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 that he asked, that was interviewing some mine worker or something. And, he, and the guy said, you know, the, President Roosevelt is the only president of the United States that recognized that my boss was the son of a gun. <laughs> so I think the context that the, that the worker, the people at the bottom, the people that are vulnerable, should be the center of our attention. Mm-hmm. So he can do that, but then we have to decide what kind of neighborhood we want. Yes. Do we want to care for our neighbors? I mean, the solution to health care is, is prevention, support groups, all the research on how people stay healthy means they, they do it by prevention and with others. Mm-hmm. All, the, all the healing methodologies for people with a margin or are trouble say that it's, it's our interdependence that heals us. It's not professional intervention. It's not drugs, chemicals. So hopefully he'll keep confronting us with what we need to do. And then all it takes is 15 or 20% of us to get together and decide we're not going to go on like we've been going on and something's going to change. But yeah. whether it does or not, is somebody else's hands. And, and I think, you know, a lot of us probably are really hopeful that maybe the pendulum is really beginning to swing because I, I don't think that there's ever been a time where people have been so disconnected. I know. That's why I wrote the book. Yeah, and certainly. And the purpose of the book is to try to concretize this. You know, the beginning of the book is what we're talking about. But then I said, well, you know, there's some incredibly simple things we can do every time we get together that make a huge difference. The weakness of the book. If I was going to knock the book, I would just say it's too simple. Yeah. Get real. It's too simple and too idealistic. Give me something longer, thicker, and harder to read. Or a checklist. Yes, wouldn't that be nice? Um, in, in Chapter 2, you also uh, share insights about uh, stories, our personal stories, and how these can be really useful or limiting. Um, and I was thinking about this you know, uh, primarily from the context, and I, I, I know it certainly has a context within communities. Uh, I remember uh, growing up in a steel town and how the stories about you know, the, the steel plant who my father and grandfather and great-grandfather all worked for owed me a living. It was kind of the mindset of that community um, during the, um, the late 70s when, you know, things were changing in that industry dramatically, um, but also in organizations. Uh, could you talk about 
you know, a little bit about these stories uh, and, and how they can limit us uh, in, in organizations. Uh, my story, they have a great quote, which is kind of a basis for this. It, it used to be in the Cold War, but Russia in Russia, even the past is unpredictable. <laughs> I, I love that because most of our stories we've made up. So you have a story, you say, well, I work for Citibank, I work for, uh, you know, the city. And you don't know what it's like around here. You hear this all the time. If you stand up, you get shot. Well, three years ago, somebody did. Well, they're not open. They're resistant to change. Well, us top management gets it. You know, there's nothing you can do around here unless you start at the top. Well, our department's fine, but marketing, it doesn't have their head screwed on straight until marketing gets it together. So you, if you listen in on people's conversations and meetings, most of the time they're talking about someone else being the cause of the problem. And unless they change or unless they report to us, we always think if we were czar, it would be better. Uh, but uh, And so those are all stories. And in my mind, they're all fiction. They're just what I've constructed for some reason. Even my story, uh, how I grew up, my family, you know, all that are stories. Now they're interesting. And sometimes they're revealing so if I hear you talk about three, four generations in the steel plant, interesting, it tells me maybe something about it, but it doesn't define who you are. Right. And it's not powerful. If I'm interested in creating a different future, those stories become a limitation. And until I get the fact that they've just been constructed and that they don't define who I am, who you are is not the daughter of four generations of steel workers. Because mm -hmm. if it wasn't, if that, if that was true and the steel plant shut down, where does that leave you? Exactly. Start over again? Mm -hmm. Or do you go through life feeling I was, my heritage was stolen from it? So the, the key is, is to get out of the notion that my story is, has anything to do with who I am. I am a bundle of commitments. I'm a bundle of choice. I'm a bundle of gifts. And so you have to help people see the limitations of their stories if they're going to create space for something new to show up in their life. And communities are really strong. Cincinnati has a story of itself that's pretty grim. I mean, our heroes are Pete Rose, Larry Flint, Jerry Springer. What do I do with that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's not who this city is. So there's just a lot in the story thing. Well, and while they're interesting and, and uh, revealing, they're not powerful. So you have to give it up and say, well, I'm paying a price for the story I have about the place that I care about. Great stuff. I really, really uh, enjoyed uh, enjoyed that piece of the book. You, you be moving along into into uh, the next section. Uh, you talk about uh, the stuck community. Um, and, and you paint a really accurate picture, I think, of all of our sins, at least in this country and probably a, a lot of the rest of the world, uh, from marketing fear to ramping up laws and romanticizing leadership. I loved your ideas on leadership. Um, I just couldn't underline enough in, in Chapter 3. Um, would you walk us through some of the ideas that, that challenge our conventional thinking uh, that, you know, that you discussed in this area of the book? Well, um you're going to make me look and see what chapter three is. Well, well, you were talking about, you let me, know. Let me respond to the question. Uh -huh. 
and that basically uh, there's an inversion required that uh, most of the messages that we get you know are fear-based messages and we have a set of beliefs that somehow when something goes wrong a new policy a new procedure a new law a new rule more jails that there's some kind of retributive response to the world that will be useful and so when there's an accident it triggers more oversight and it's this basic belief that somehow tightening control creates a more positive future that i'm trying to question and i'm trying to invert where cause resides that somehow if the future is going to be different i have to change my mind and realize that citizens create leaders and students create teachers and my children created me i've involved as six kids and there's nothing i can connect between what i did in raising them and how they turned out and so it's, it's really trying to say well let me shift my thinking about where cause is and let me stop believing that a deficiency orientation and retributive responses to it are all useful in eliminating the problems that we've got. So if I've got a problem with youth or crime or health or environment or transportation or education, focusing on those problems isn't going to make a difference. That's what we've been doing for 50 years. And so I've got to shift the orientation and say that I want to view the possibilities and the gifts that exist in a certain situation. And out of that, something can change. So if I see youth on the street corner during the day, during school hours, instead of saying those are youth at risk, why don't I decide to see them as possibilities? Why don't I say those kids have gifts? that they don't know how to deliver, and that's why they're up to mischief. They don't know how to be useful in their lives. And so it's just a whole shift. And so then that shifts my action. If I think that way, I say, well, how do I find out what their gifts are? I got an idea. Let me go talk to them. Hi, how are you? What do you like to do? And this is true with youth. It's true with people who are disabled. With people who are mentally ill, it's true with employees at the first level, and uh, and so we just have such a deficiency mindset, and we've lost such faith in the capacity of people who aren't in power that it it, it keeps us frozen. It does keep us frozen. I'd love to see us apply those same kinds of ideas to people who we've labeled as terrorists in this world as well. Thank you. I know. Ultimately, we're going to make peace. I've done a fair amount of work in Northern Ireland. And so they have been 35 years into warfare between the two sides, the Orangemen and the, and the IRA. And uh, in the early, sooner or later, you know, now they did make peace. They met in jail is how the peace got started. And the guys from both sides met in jail, and after at some point they said that we want our grandchildren to meet like we are. Wow. Really? And they said no. And when they got out, they said we're going to work something out. Amazing. So if you look at the Palestinians or, or the Middle East or people we call terrorists, mm -hmm. you know, we're going to work something out with these countries sooner or later. Why don't we do it now? I agree. 
and the Iraqis and Iranians, not, it's not who they are. I mean, there are people doing awful things, but there's people doing awful things all over the world. Sure there are. And why don't we, why don't we look at causes instead of using that as an excuse for more internal retribution? I read somewhere, I don't think I read it before I finished the book, but that somehow there's a combination of imperialism abroad requires repression at home. And once we decide that we know what's good for other countries, inevitably we're going to live in a more high-control, repressive, wall-building country internally. That's, that's, that's what's going to kill us. Yeah, I, I completely, completely agree. Yeah. Wow. Kindred spirit. Yeah, the kind of yes. the conservatism. Is, how about about taking care of business and, and stop this notion that we are an imperial and colonial power. That's what's killing. Yeah. Uh, in talking about the restorative community, uh, you talk a little bit about the importance of, of language and um, the difference between accountability and entitlement. We've already talked a little bit about some of this um, earlier. Um, would you just discuss these just uh, these two ideas just a little bit? And, uh, and, and if you can recall, uh, Peter, you share an, an example, which I thought was really powerful. Uh, was, I believe called the Claremont Counseling Center. And do that. You're worried about me remembering.
but basically Phoenix Place says, why don't we focus on the gifts and capacities of people and help them learn that in the face of their recovery from mental illness, they have things they do well. I mean, really well. And so Phoenix Place is has a leadership team of its members. So uh, Mag runs the place, but her team are members, people recovering from mental illness, and their discussion is, so what can you do? And so some of them are good at intake. They know how to interview other mentally ill people, and so they're in charge of intake. Others are good at cleaning up and creating order in the place. And it's just a whole, so they come there, it's not a residential, but they come there during the day, and they participate in running the treatment center of which they are a participant. It's amazing. It's amazing. And, and when you're with them, you realize they have enormous gifts. For example, they listen. We've been having meetings that include them. And when they sit next to me, they look at me, they make eye contact, and they don't feel compelled to speak like I do. They're not out there to make a point. They have enormous empathy. They have enormous intuition. They have enormous listening capacities. And, uh, and so it's just a, again, this is a great example of where the context that MAG creates and Claremont create in that place is, if you come here, we're interested in your gifts. If you take a diagnostic questionnaire with us, it's going to be about what your gifts and your strengths are. One of them said, I think I put this in the book, it's the first time I've ever taken a test. Yeah. I scored well. Yes, I love that. God, it just breaks your heart. Mm. And it's not that they don't have deficiencies. I do have deficiencies. I got some great ones that I've spent years perfecting them. But focusing on them isn't useful. It doesn't get rid of them. And so that, that Phoenix Place is a great example of that. It really is. And even just the language of recovering from mental illness is such a powerful, you know... Uh, that's how they, that's the, you know, that's the language they've chosen to describe themselves. Yeah, it's great. And aren't we all? Yeah. <laughs> yes, we are. Thank you. <laughs> there have been many voices um, over the past few years that have uh, expressed the concern that here, at least in this country, I, I, I don't think we're unique to this problem, however, that we are becoming a nation of consumers. And I love in your bio, um, you know, the fact that you point out that you are a citizen of, of uh, your community. Your chapter um, about this is, I think, really excellent. And uh, I, I wonder, do you feel that um, we no longer are a nation of citizens here in the U.S.? And, and what would you say it means to become a citizen? And are there places in the world maybe that people still are citizens? Well, I, I think we are totally consumers. It's our, all of our measures are it's consumers. Mm -hmm. What was the mandate after 9-11? Oh, yeah. Shop. Mm -hmm. So it's not only who I am and my mindset, it's also our economy is organized around retail sales. Mm -hmm. Nobody was interested in crisis this Christmas. They were interested in retail sales. Yeah. That's what all the headlines were. And so we, we, we've organized our belief system that consumerism is the key to the good life. And, and fairly recent, it's the last, I don't know, 60 years, where we marketed needs 
and uh, when the going gets tough, the tough goes shopping. So we very much now what that means at a human level is that I now think I have to purchase what I require. I'm no longer able to produce it. So a citizen is somebody who can produce satisfaction for themselves and who has the belief that maybe what I have is enough, both in my own capacities and the things that I have. And so citizenship is the belief that this neighborhood, community, country is mine to create, and I have the tools and capacities and gifts to produce that. I don't need to depend on a mall or a set of services or a set of doctors or anybody who's I've just had a good friend pass away, and so I've been close to the hospital system for two weeks. And uh, you don't, if you're looking for help, that's not where you want to go. No, no. Not. And so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a you know, profound notion that to be a citizen is simply someone who can produce their own satisfaction. And they don't have to. It doesn't mean I can do it alone. I can't. I need a neighbor. I need a family. I need an extended family. I need a community to produce that. But we, together, through association, can produce whatever we want, whether it's the care for our child, whether it's safety for our neighborhood, health, environment. We, and so that's, the, that's what citizenship is. Now, you, you do find it. Some of us grew up in it. You know, if, if you're over 50, you might remember where your family was all in one place and most of what you did, you knew how to entertain yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, and so in, in less developed countries, you still find citizens. Mm-hmm. You still find neighborhoods. Now, we call them um, subsistence economies. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to modernize them. Yeah. You, you know, Fix them. I, you know, mm-hmm. that, this is globalization is a fancy word mm-hmm. for making them like us, for exporting a consumer economy, basically. Mm-hmm. And so there are places, and when you go to less developed countries, you find real neighborhoods. Right. You find people that only shop when they need something. They don't shop for recreation. Yeah. And they, don't, they aren't loaded. They don't have ten different wires hooked up to their body. <laughs> get bored. So I would say wherever you find an unwired community, you found some citizens. Yeah, good. Well, maybe uh, maybe they can export citizenship to to uh, those of us that are wired and and uh, kind of sucked into the whole thing. So. Because the, the, the technology is interesting, but that's all. It's amazing, but so what? Yeah. What does that have to do with what I had in mind for my life? Just because I can do something more easily doesn't mean that it's the quality of it is, is there. You know? I think we miss the idea of what does that mean for my life and that kind of thinking. We get so tied into all of the responsibilities that we create for ourselves in our lives so we can be good consumers. Exactly. I, 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 if I... I want to write a book. I just—it just all it has is a title. But it's called "Select All, Delete." <laughs> you know, it, 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 it is a whole whole set of beliefs that somehow I need to 
accumulate all these things to fulfill my responsibilities. You're exactly right. Yeah, I'm sure you're well aware of the work of Simplicity Forum and, and some of those those folks. Yeah. Maker Society. Yeah. Market. Yes. They've got it right. Yes. You know, possible future. Slow food, slow eating, slow cooking. All of those things are right on it. It's not like this, these ideas are, don't exist in the world. We just haven't decided that they're central. Yeah. We think they're just interesting. We call them alternative methodology. Yeah. We discount something. We discount by calling it an alternative, but it's not the real thing. You know, it's alternative medicine. Well, that's not real medicine. Right, right. So that's where the language is so powerful. Yeah. Why I decide that preventative health and what I eat and stuff is medicine. That's the real thing. And once in a while I go to the alternative thing, which is chemicals and drugs. Well, closely related to all of this conversation that we've been having about citizenship, you get into something a little later in the book that you call leadership is convening and um, I thought this was really a powerful idea and uh, we've touched on this a little bit but I wonder if we could go just a little further with what this is about and and, and it's so sad that, that these ideas are so counter to how we view leadership in most organizations today certainly most communities and really even as a nation we already talked about you know some people's expectations of, of our um, new president coming in can you share some of your thoughts about leadership from, uh, from you know, this area of the book? And, and you also shared a really powerful illustration. Yeah. The, uh, half the conversation is what leadership isn't. And uh, it takes a big burden off my shoulders if I decide that leadership is not about dy- being dynamic, charismatic, having certain characteristics, the five C's, the ten C's. Uh, seven habits. Leadership is not about being something other than what I am. And so I stop looking for leaders to be have a vision or being energetic or, or speak to the hearts and minds of what's in people. And so half of it said, let go of all that because you and I and others, we are who we are. You know, this is it. This is the package. This is the cards I've been dealt. Why am I so uncomfortable? satisfied with that. The other is that leadership really is helping citizens or employees come together with each other. So everything I see about how change occurs in the world occurs out of a peer-peer relationship. When employees decide to work well together, when neighbors decide to work well together, when, uh, when uh, if you look at health care, when a family decides to care for each other and their own health, these are moments of high performance and high transformation. So if that was true, and if I look at Harley-Davidson or, or some of the great examples of companies that have changed themselves, saved themselves, it was by building strong teams and strong peer relationships that they achieved that. If that's true, then maybe that's the task of leadership, is simply to bring people together in a new way. And that's what's called the convening capacity. And maybe the task of leadership is more about listening than speaking, and more about questions than answers. And that's where this one project, the two friends of mine, Joe and Michael Hoxie, and their, their kids actually, were hired as 
social workers as therapists to work with 12 inner-city black street kids. And the kids, they said, you want to play basketball? You go and get some. Get, go to this workshop first. That's the price you pay to get on the basketball court. So you had some pretty desperate administrators there. And so they hired Joan to facilitate these kids. And after about two hours, Joan and Michael, and uh, they realized this is not going well. <laughs> Zoned out. There's a little, very little eye contact. Their right foot is tapping like crazy on the ground. And so they stopped. And I, God bless them for having the wisdom to stop their design. You know, they had designed uh, a program on relationship building. And they said, what's up with you guys? And uh, not much. So they met again because the guys wanted to play basketball. What's up with you guys? And after about the third meeting, the guys started talking. They said, well, here's who we are. Here's what our life is. And Joan and Michael and Tom and Jill and the four of them decided we're going to spend six months listening and understanding who these people are, who these young people are. And that the more they listened, the more the kids showed up, the more they were on time. They brought them a cake, a culinary bribery. And so the kids knew every time that Joan had baked a cake as, a, as an expression of her affection. And for six months, they just listened, and they never gave advice. And what happened was they all got connected. They fell in love with each other. These people started to trust Joan and Michael. Michael and Joan started to trust these kids. And, uh, and something got created, and the kids started to straighten up a little bit. It had an impact on the kids to be seen, understood, valued, that somebody was interested in who they were, not interested in making them better. And, uh, and what it resulted in, which is even it's happened since the book came out, but these kids said, well, Joan and Michael's workshop was over, and they, they, they got so much of being together, let's do something together. And it turns out one of these kids had written a script for a movie. Oh, my goodness. Bill Fraser had written the script, and he'd been sitting on it for a year. And they said, well, what do you got there, Joe? He says, well, I got this script. It's called The Last Shot. And, you know, one of the thoughts was, let's make a documentary of our process, but there's too many of those. Yeah. And they said, let's, and they made the movie. And we just had, on December 28th, we just had the world premiere of a 58-minute movie made by these 15 kids. Oh, my goodness. On their own will and their own time called The Last Shot. And it has changed their lives. They now believe that they have a future, which is quite amazing. Wow. The power of love to transform, isn't it amazing? It really is, and it came from listening, from saying, let me find out who you are, mm -hmm. rather than let me tell you who you should become. So one of the ground rules that I, it's in the book, is, that, is the injunction against advice. I have stopped helping people. And I, I can't stop giving advice. It's, it's, it's horrible. It's a horrible. One of my deficiencies. Yeah, me too. <laughs> at, least know it's, at least I know it's not useful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, that is so so very powerful. Um, uh, it, it looks like we're we're kind of uh, approaching towards the end of our time today, and, and I was wondering uh, to kind of wrap things up for us. And you had uh, just mentioned them much earlier in our conversation, you know, the fact that your your model is for these six conversations and 
you chose the number for, for whatever reason, uh, ease of remembering it. Uh, but I was wondering if, if maybe you could just tell us a little bit about those conversations, just to kind of give us a sense of your approach and your model. Let me give you the uh, – if people uh, got this, they don't have to read the book, okay? So this is – what what let me just tell you the essence of, of, of the action part of the book. Okay. One is that uh, questions are the point. So you either get really good at questions that are ambiguous, personal, and anxiety-provoking. So like, uh, what's the question if you had an answer to what set you free? It's a great question because I don't know what the heck it means, but it's kind of interesting. Uh, the other is that when you, when you bring people together, break them into small groups quickly groups of four or five and make them sit with their knees less than nine inches from the person next to them so they're leaning into each other. A third ground rule is don't give advice, get curious, so ask people why does it matter instead of what are you going to do about it or here's what I would have done. And then the domain in which this kind of circle occurs is a question of, first of all, what's the possibility that you came here to live out? not what's the problem you came here to solve. So this is the possibility conversation. And the best question is, what's the crossroads you're at at this stage of your life? There's an ownership question, and the question there is, and all these conversations are triggered by a question. So the ownership question is, what are you doing to contribute to the very thing that you're complaining about? So if I can answer that, I can do something. Yeah. I can't answer that. I'm left to a life of complaint and disappointment. A third one is, is if you can't say no, your yes doesn't mean anything. So the question is, what's the no you've been postponing? What's the yes you gave that you no longer need? Beautiful questions. Terrifying questions. The uh, commitment conversation is, what's the promise you're willing to make with no expectation? of return. So commitment is something I choose. It's an act of generosity. It's not a deal to be made. And the final is what's the gift that you can it's a gift conversation versus decision. What's the gift that you continue to hold in exile? What's the gift given to you that you've not yet fully brought into the world? And uh, one one question is what's what feedback do you get when you hear it you're still embarrassed? One of the ground rules when people say something positive to each other is just say thank you. Yeah. I like hearing that because it's, most of us are blind to our gifts. And then the sixth conversation is one of invitation. Now, what's the invitation that you're waiting for? Or what's the invitation you want to make that you've been reluctant to make? Because the world is transformed not by mandate but by invitation by people saying, would you join me in this? And, uh, and, and you learn to embody that in all the small ways of how we gather. So when people do break up into small groups, you never count off. You always say, find three people in this room that you know the least and sit in a circle with them and try these questions. Yeah. Well, I, I was uh, you know, really... Uh, intrigued by the process and of course with um, some experience and background with World Cafe and Appreciative Inquiry, but I have to admit your questions, the questions that you have in your book were extraordinarily powerful 
and um, I really appreciate your your taking the time to to visit with us today. The gift of of your uh, conversation. And um, how did it go? What do you think? I I think it went great. <laughs> great. You, you you care about these things. I I do. I do care about these. You're not just making a living. No, I I. You're doing a job. This is work. This is your work. Yes. You have enormous curiosity, and, and uh, you have a great intuition about the things that matter. Well, and, and, I, I, and, I, I feel like you really got this book, and I'm grateful for that. And, and I, I, I'm grateful for you for, for writing this book and for sharing these things that are obviously on your mind and heart with us um, in your work and certainly through this book. So, so we, we'd like to thank you again and um, all of us who, who are here with us today and, and those who will listen in the future. And I wanted to remind folks uh, once again uh, that if there is interest in purchasing uh, Peter's book, and regardless of whether he says you don't have to read the book after you've heard the interview, I would strongly disagree with that. Um, and I would like to encourage you to visit his website, uh, which is once again www.designedlearning.com, designedlearning.com. In uh, February, I wanted to remind folks that I will be visiting with uh, Kim Cameron, who will be discussing a book that he has written, which is called Positive Leadership. And um, to just to remind you that if you would like to always be in the know about our bookend interviews, which occur on a monthly basis, that you can go to our website, teamapproach.com, and sign up for the uh, notifications to receive um, you know, what's happening on bookends. There's a button there on the site that, for you to do that, and we'd love to have you join us again in the future. So once again, we want to thank you, Peter Block, for being our wonderful guest today and for sharing your time with us. Thank you. If, if anybody wants to, my email is pdi at att.net. So and that's, I love hearing from you. Sometimes it's a little hard to distinguish between a, a D and a B. Would you go through that one more time? And, B is in Block. So it's, okay, so it's PB for Peter Block. Thanks so much again, Peter. We appreciate it. Bye-bye now.